Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We're out there to take country. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He holed me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to the first of three very special episodes. When speaking with veterans over our last two seasons, Angus, Sharon, Thomas and I have all come across some recurring issues and struggles, spanning across different conflicts, deployments, ranks, service branches, and even generations. We wanted to get back together with some of our veterans to have panel discussions about these topics, and for them to share their thoughts. Many of you will have heard today's guest stories before, and to those of you who have discovered us more recently, I encourage you to go back and listen to the individual interviews. In today's panel, Angus Horden spoke with three veterans of the modern era about what it means to be a veteran today. I'm Angus Horden, and today we're joined by three previous guests on our show. In our studio with us today is Garth Callender. Hi, Garth. Hi, Angus. I'm also here with Michael Wright. G'day, Angus. And we're also joined by Glenn Collimans. Good morning, Angus. Gents, before we get started, can we very quickly recap each of your previous service histories for our listeners? Um, my history goes back some way. I joined the joined Defence in 1986 as a, as a soldier tradesman, was commissioned some years later um, into military police eventually, and then finally into legal corps, um, where I served as a lawyer in East Timor and Afghanistan with special operations, and uh, finally as a military prosecutor. I spent 17 years in the regular army. I um, deployed twice to Iraq and to Afghanistan. I was a cavalry officer and, and in my first trip to Iraq I was quite badly injured by an improvised explosive device in Baghdad. And I did uh, 11 years in the Navy. I went through the Australian Defence Force Academy down in uh, Canberra and after that uh, spent time up in the Gulf on mighty warship Canimbla and a bit of time on patrol boats after that. Let's talk about how the national conversation about war and veterans has evolved in the early 2000s. Garth, you came back from Iraq as our country's first serious casualty seriously injured by that IED. When you came back home to recover, how did you find public sentiment towards the war you'd been fighting? It was a really interesting time for Australia. We, we hadn't had a lot of casualties. We hadn't had a lot of serious, well, we hadn't really had serious casualties from that conflict. And I remember getting home and hearing my name on the radio. You know, it was a really unusual time. I don't think the general public were expecting casualties, even though what was happening in the US and the UK, they were, they were taking the, the lion's share of casualties and they'd had hundreds of fatalities by that stage of the war in Iraq. Michael, you came back from the Gulf as an officer on board Canimbla. When you get back from that deployment, what was your take on the public attitude towards what we were doing overseas? I think it was pretty positive. We had, um, you know, the news crews and all that sort of stuff down there. So I think we were uh, welcomed back fairly well. Hard to say anything else, really. Glenn, being a veteran and a barrister, you've also had your finger on the pulse on this topic. Can you tell us a bit about your experience of cases when you've been assisting veterans 
and their mental health issues. And I'll just go one step back if I can, uh, just to, to build on what Garth was saying. In 2005, 2006, I was Defence Advisor at Parliament House and uh, for Labor and Opposition. And there was very much a, uh, an attitude around the, the Labor Party then about uh, being in this quagmire in Iraq and needing, needing an exit strategy and a time to get out of there. So the sentiment around Parliament House was quite um, quite negative surrounding Iraq. Um, and to answer your question now about the, the veterans, I've seen an enormous number of um, veterans either transitioning out or out for some time, very mentally and often physically broken. So I haven't seen a lot of a good news story come out of these conflicts mm. from, my, from my perspective. And if I could expand on that again, you know, to take to take the story even further, you, you actually need to, to understand Australia, you need to go back to, to the 1950s and 1960s. If you want to really understand where Australia's acceptance or their, their views on the veteran population is, 1950s and 1960s Australia, most of the people in management and leadership roles were ex-military. They'd come out the back end of World War II and Korea and their professionalism in management and leadership was revered. That went to then the Vietnam War where... where public sentiment went exactly the opposite way. People didn't understand what the military had done. They didn't like the fact that the military involved in Vietnam and they treated their veterans very differently. I think 2000s and East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan, we're at another stage where the general population really doesn't know how to interact with us, doesn't know what we've done. It's actually the results of a really good thing. So Australia is a peaceful country. We've basically always been a peaceful country. The military is on the periphery of the general population's understanding, their consciousness, which is a really positive thing. The only drawback to that is people don't understand what military people do, they, they can't relate to them and they don't know how they should be feeling about the veteran population. I'll just build on that again, sorry. I don't <laughs> but um, th that's a very good point that Garth raises and um, th this actually comes out of, I've been speaking to some journalists lately, it comes out of the, the refusal of the Australian government and defence to embed Australian journalists mm. with our deployed forces, such mm. that Australian journalists will embed with US or British forces or Dutch forces previously or indeed Afghan forces, but not their own. So the public aren't seeing what our troops are doing on the ground in, in a real-time environment, other than what they see through defence media, which is very, very watered down, very, uh, very uh, propagandish, you could say. So Garth's quite right. The public don't know what we do. Therefore, they're, they're wrapped up in this Anzac legend, this um, bit of a myth surrounding the Australian Defence Force uh, member, without seeing the facts and what's happening on the ground and what we actually do do in deployed locations. That's right. We're, we're defined by the media and mm. by Hollywood not by real-life stories. Yep, great and, point. And that's because of a real risk aversion too. So I've had mm. a um, news crew out with us and they tell the story that they want to tell. And the story that they told in that case was that we were destroying the livelihood of this poor fisherman because uh, that's that's mm. that's the bit that they showed. And, and that you know didn't play well, but what actually happens is we're um, protecting Australia's resources. So that's, that's a story that uh, probably should have been told, certainly by defence. So, gents, do we feel that there's a bit of knock on from what happened in Vietnam, that suddenly this was the first televised reported war that brought the horrors of war into the homes of the average person. And therefore, they're a bit reluctant to let the genie out of the bottle again. I think Michael hit the nail on the head when he said that um, our, our, our government, our defence um, force, indeed Australians are more risk averse. I think it's that risk aversion, which uh, certainly would build on, on the post-Vietnam televised warfare piece. But I think they're just afraid to have any bad news story get out there or indeed that, that then stifles any good news story, sadly. So it's this risk aversion, which I think um, other, our coalition partners don't necessarily have. Hence, they, they tend to put the story out, good or bad. When you all leave war and come home, 
in different ways, some in hospital, some just sort of filtering into home. Previously on Anzac days, we've seen, you know, homecoming parades of a unit march down the main street of town. Now, there, there was none of that for you guys. How did you feel about that? It's funny uh, listening to Glenn talking about the, the 2005-06 sentiment versus what we had. So we came back uh, with bands on the wharf and heaps of people, chief of Navy, all that sort of stuff, and it was because it was so close to uh, 9-11. So it was still fresh in people's mind. There was still a direct link between an incident that occurred and then a direct military action after that. I think we did feel pretty well welcomed back. We We were welcome when we came back and it was seen as um as for good reason so i don't i don't really have the the disconnect between uh, or that some other people have had garth you came back home under different circumstances i did and really i was um i was walking but i wasn't in good shape and basically i went from the airplane straight back into hospital and had a third lot of surgery but i guess in regards to this topic my my second trip the return was probably worth raising you know my second trip to iraq one of the blokes accidentally shot himself jake kovko looking at the date, it's, it's, it's 12, 12 years to the day today from when Jake died. And we came back to a bit of a media circus, to be honest. We walked off the plane at Sydney Airport and were swarmed by media, all with their own agendas of what story they wanted to be telling, not necessarily aligned with the story that, that we wanted them to hear. I remember Jake was in your command. So I, I was the second in command of the combat team. So he didn't directly work for me, but we were in the same organisation, yeah, same 110-man team. I came back um, actually off the strategic flight to Sydney at Sydney Airport to a brand new baby. Quite, um, I was unshaven, long hair, looking a bit feral. But um, just to build on what Michael said, on that same flight were a whole lot of Navy people coming back, all in their in their cams, in their uniform. So I sort of snuck behind them in my civilian clothes, looking looking filthy and feral. But they they came back to a, to quite a quite a good media welcome and uh, and Navy public relations welcome. So I think um, things have certainly changed. And the, the reason they wore uniform was to have this big welcome back at Sydney Airport. So you know, good on them. That was a, that was. A good welcome, I think, for them. So trauma from service and the difficulties transitioning are a serious issue. But is the label overused today and indeed oversimplified by the media? Are we encouraging everyone to think that trauma from service equals dysfunctional, unhinged or broken? I think so, yeah. And I think that um, there is a perception, not just in the media, but also with um, people in general, that uh, someone who is ex-military is going to be traumatised, is going to be damaged, and they're not going to be able to deal with normal people. So I think that's a legitimate perception that's put out there. From my own perspective, I tell this story a lot to kind of get the, the understanding of the number of people who are coming out the back end of the military broken. But I was injured in, in 2004. There are about 25 Australians involved in that. So And it was a bomb blast in the middle of a, a built-up city. Um, it, it was about as grisly as you're going to get. There were there were children killed. There were people horribly maimed from that bomb blast. I was injured and two of the other vehicle crew were injured. And there were about 25 Australians involved in that incident in some way or another. They worked treating the, treating the casualties. They worked treating me. They got me to hospital. That, those blokes, in essence, saved my life. But at the end of the day, out of those 25 guys, one bloke passed away about two and a half years ago from young onset dementia, an illness that was linked to the bomb blast. He came back with very bad post-traumatic stress and depression, which was not treated until very late. I've had two guys who've been hospitalised off and on over the years who have been suicidal. And there's two guys who have sort of good days and bad days. The other 20 of us have grown, I think, from that incident. They've moved on and... You know, they're doing amazing stuff. You know, a couple of them are federal police, particularly in counterterrorism roles, doing amazing work. A handful of them are still in the military now. They're now senior soldiers and mid-ranking officers. There's small business owners. Um, there's you know, public servants. They are doing amazing work. They're not broken from that incident, about as nasty of the incident as you're going to see. 
in fact, they use that in their day-to-day life as resilient human beings. PTSD is very easy to say, and it makes for a very sensational uh, headline on the front page of a newspaper. So I, I, I think that um, the media do portray the extent of PTSD in much greater terms than, than is the reality. I think, uh, and I've seen this in my practice, that um, there's almost a perception that everybody who comes out of out of defence or certainly back from operations has some sort of mental health injury. Um, that hasn't helped me in my practice because uh, in my, my mental health criminal diversion practice, which is the bulk of my work, I've had magistrates, it's been very successful, mind you, but I've had magistrates try and downplay the argument that I'm making that these people need, these these veterans need to be diverted out of the criminal justice system into treatment because of their mental health conditions. And um, I've had magistrates almost say, well, it's so prevalent in defence. Every defence member who comes before me would have PTSD and therefore why should I divert your client? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very bad outcome, uh, I think. Anyone who's been through trauma and come out the other side is going to be stronger, they're going to be better, they're going to have better coping mechanisms as long as they've actually dealt with it. So if the trauma hasn't been dealt with and they haven't been able to process it, haven't had the the right support, then it could be um, debilitating. But otherwise, they're going to be exactly the sort of person you want to walk with you through trauma next time around. Michael, what do you make of the attitude towards PTSD with other veterans, considering that you were in the Navy Unlike Garth, you weren't blown up by a bomb in the middle of a street. Yet, how do you feel that you are deserving of this term PTSD as in the others? I don't claim it and I don't really want to claim it either. It's not a prize, so uh, I'm not particularly proud of it. Uh, It was, to me, like having a broken leg or a head injury or something. It's something that I needed to get treated for and if I didn't have to have it, I would much prefer that, I think. So it's not a prize. I don't want it. But it's been so much harder for you because, with no disrespect, Garth came back with the physical mm. scars. You know, he has the bomb blast and the scars from it. And in your case, it wasn't as obvious as it was in Garth's case. Mm. I, I think we do ourselves a real disservice in comparing our, our service. The things that happen on operations or just in military service in general, a fire can be just as um, just as debilitating to the people involved in dealing with it as an actual bomb blast. So comparing trauma, it's just apples and oranges. You, you can't do it. And the way people deal with it is is different as well. So I'm not fussed. If people want to compare me with um, Garth and say that I'm I'm not worthy, then go for it because... But this uh, is to it, Glenn's point that in the courts, the judge is throwing out there, you've all got PTSD, and yet there's so many different versions of it and how, you know, Garth, it's affecting some of your mates so many years later who are taking their lives so tragically... I mean, you just can't measure this thing. It, it's not fair to try and have some scorecard rating. Everyone's yeah. a loser in the process. Thanks, Angus. And I think you're, you're exactly right. And I think if people do try and put a scorecard on this, um, particularly around suicide rates. And there's a lot of statistics that get thrown out. You know, I, I know the, the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing released a report, what was about 12 months ago now, which was specifically looking at suicide rates um, in defence. And I... I don't want to sound like an asshole because I, I, you know, I've I've had friends take their lives. I'm, I don't mean to sound flippant about it, but there's the media does portray the fact that you know the veteran pastime is is killing ourselves, and it's whilst it is happening, it's happening in Australian society. It's an issue. It's not just the veteran community. The numbers get cherry picked out of reports. You know that what the headline doesn't say is that current serving you know, males are significantly less likely to take their own lives. You know, people who have discharged from the military but stay in the reserves are significantly less likely to take their own lives. Rather, they highlight the group from 18 to 24, which is 
twice as likely to take their own lives. And I say, well, okay, why Why has as someone who's left the military at 18 to 24 twice, twice as likely to take their own lives? And I say, okay, why have they left the military when they're 18 to 24 years old? So they've, they've generally done less than six years service, if that's the case. And that's they've obviously not been a fit for the military. They've been medically discharged. Something like that would be the answer for why they're leaving, which would mean they're in a bad spot to start off with. And they're in that danger period for Australian males anyway and they're having an upheaval in their professional life in the military which is all about team and and community and they've been drawn out of that yeah i mean that's so true the greatest cause of death in male youth today is suicide yeah the fact that they're in the military or not with respect is irrelevant because Mm. that's the biggest cause of death and it's an absolute tragedy that's right it's an australian social issue um definitely not just in within the bounds of the veteran community I take Garth's point, and I um and I, I I'm not going to say he's an arsehole. He, 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 he disclaimed that that, um, <laughs> that nomenclature, but uh, yeah. but uh, the funerals I've been to in the last couple of years are, have been serving long-term special operations soldiers. One particular sergeant, very good mate of mine, and former client of mine, out at Holsworthy. And after which I pulled over on Heathcote Road and cried for an hour because this is how frustrating this whole space is. Um, so, yes, I can see what Garth's saying about these people who may not have been a good fit. But we're talking 13, 14 year special operations soldiers who were a very good fit here killing themselves. So so we can we can use all the data. We can use all the statistics. We can say, well, you know, when we compare them to the rest of these males in the same age, but we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be comparing them to the other males in the same age group. We should be saying these are some of these people, and I would suggest a lot of these people are longer-term serving members and or veterans um, who have taken their own lives, having served overseas you know, the majority of the time. We have to ask ourselves why, and I agree with the media headline here. It is a national disgrace that any of these people are doing it, particularly, as I say, the last couple I've been to, which I just sat back pulling my hair out thinking, why has this happened? So good point, Garth. And yes, uh, the, the stats are there and there's definitely an argument that way, but I still think we have to be looking at the fact that's happening. And, yeah, and, and, look, and you, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And I'm talking about generalities and, and yeah. statistics and how we've betrayed. I definitely wouldn't want to detract from those individual circumstances and they are they are tragic and right. you're absolutely right. I think that's part of part of how those suicides come about and how the trauma comes about is that it is so isolating. You do think, I'm not worthy of this, I'm not worthy of feeling down about this particular thing. Garth could think I didn't die, you know, I didn't get badly injured, didn't lose a leg, and that could cause, you know, a score against someone else or say that, you know, I'm not as badly injured, so what am I doing being upset when really it's a horrific thing to go through regardless of uh, what everyone else has been through. And it's not till you've experienced that yourself, the guilt you feel that you've left this mate back in Afghanistan or wherever or, or on board this ship and this happened to them, you never do quite feel quite worthy of the loss of their memory. If we talk about the term veteran today... I feel veteran should be used the sense of probably the way that the, the word was was originally designed. So somebody who is who is well-practised in their skills, somebody who's been in the job for a long time. I don't feel like it's it's whether you've deployed overseas or not. I think somebody is a military veteran, somebody who's been in the, in the military and they're, they're, they're trained and experienced in their profession. It kind of gets back to, to Michael's point. It's not about what you've what you've done, where you've been. It's the, the, it's the, the fact that you are a former member of the profession of arms, yeah. The fact is with your service, you don't actually choose where to go. You don't choose to get force assigned in an area. You don't choose to get deployed. Usually you don't even get to choose your postings. So to be so exclusive and say, you know, a veteran is only a person who's been on warlike service or only an army person, it, it that is really divisive and it mm-hmm. and it puts a whole lot of people on the outer when really they, they should be included. And it did the stress with 
with warfare is the anticipation that danger will come to you. Mm. And you don't know if you are posted on this ship, what is up there? Um, I can still remember in the first Gulf War when Bob Hawke deployed you know, some of our frigates, there was a young chap who cried on board one of the frigates who was pulled off because of his anticipation that he'd signed up and now he actually had to do something. We all would have joined about the same time, sort of mid, mid-90s. And at that stage... Mid-80s, but who's counting? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you are old. Nah, I, was, um, I was 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at that time... Very few of our instructors, you know, the people who were teaching us, had war medals. Very few of them had been anywhere. So to say that they're not a veteran detracts from the fact that they might have done 30 years service. You know, you're not, yeah. you know, you're not going to say this is not a highly experienced military person. It just their circumstances have meant that they didn't deploy to a war zone, but it doesn't mean they're not... Uh... Defining the term veteran so, so um, narrowly, I think, it has helped divide or helps fragment the veteran community. We had a very powerful voice once in this country, the veteran sector, mm-hmm. after the first war. And I think over time, we ourselves, as well as government and others, have, have allowed the veteran the ex-service sector to, to fragment along generational lines, along conflict lines, along he or she who went overseas or he or she, he or she didn't. Um, so I, I think it's very dangerous and very fragmenting and not, not good for our voice, the veteran voice, to be able to say, well, unless you served overseas in combat, you're you're a veteran or unless you served overseas at all you're a veteran where do you where do you stop then do you say you have to have actually been in gunfights you have to have actually been a combat veteran or you're not a veteran if you're on ships or if you're a flying hercules so it's a it's a very to, to narrow it garth's absolutely right here and so is michael it should be broadly defined as people who have served within their specialty in defense give us that voice back and let us be able to, to unite again glenn and garth you both started young families while serving and missed some key moments with your kids lives can you share a bit about that with us? I'll tell you how, how bloody lucky I was, to be honest. I, um, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2009 and my wife was pregnant when I left. Must have knocked her up almost on the way up the, up the ramp onto the plane, to be honest. Um, uh, it, um, she's going to hate me if this goes there. Uh, um, and so she was pregnant through the nine months that I was away and I got home four days before my second daughter was born. So And that was... That was pure luck rather than good planning. She could have come early and I, and I might have missed it, but luckily I was, I was back in time to, for the birth. Emma was, uh, was pregnant when I left and we actually had planned it so that I would be back just pretty much just in time for the birth. But um, Nicholas, my, my little bloke, decided not to play by those rules. He came, he came early. It's actually a bit of a horror story, I have to say. He, um, he, came, he was uh, premature and uh, had a little bit of hypoxia, so they had to fly him. Emma was in, we were in Wagga at this stage, so he had to be flown by child flight to Sydney. Emma was a, is a GP. She was a GP at the time, and uh, so she knew what was going on. She had HELP syndrome, so uh, severe preeclampsia. So she was, herself was hemorrhaging and had a few other issues. In the meantime, I'm getting, I got a couple of phone calls from my father-in-law saying, well, the baby's on child flight. Emma's about to, about to be flown to Sydney as well. I'm supposed to be getting on a helicopter, had a job to do. Well, I'm hearing this. Anyway, I came home to, everything worked out fine. Everything worked out fine. I came home to a brand new baby waiting for me at the airport. As I said before, he was uh, he was there a couple of weeks out of, a week or so out of hospital, his little hospital band still on and all clean and nice. And I'm filthy and unshaven and no water in Dubai the one night I had there before we came home. So this dirty, filthy soldier hugging this little tiny baby. But I think Garth hit the nail on the head when he spoke about how, well, he touched on how the um, his wife, and as did my wife, went through their pregnancies by themselves, in, in our case, in a town away from her family, probably in yours mm-hmm. too, I suspect. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, look, it's it's hard. Yeah, and they don't ask to be single parents, but that's the reality <laughs> when uh, that's when right. we're away for protracted periods. That's yeah. right. But they married into the military, and that's part of the service as well. Yeah. The whole family served. Yeah, well, when Emma was issued with her spouse, army spouse ID, she wasn't particularly happy because I don't really think she married into the military to her view. So you both are typical of so many modern veterans who come back from war and upon leaving the forces, get on with life. We have people discharging with young families. They're not receiving pensions like previous veterans. And now they go out and like everyone else, they're expected to pick up their life and get on with a job. So firstly, Michael, how did you find this transition? Uh, I think uh, a lot of people still think we do get a pension. So uh, a lot of people have asked me about that and said, oh, it must be good to still have a pension. There's no, no such thing. I found the transition fairly difficult. It was, it's tough to find a job. It was really um, tough to marry my skills up with what I was actually going to do afterwards and to articulate what that 11 years of service meant to, to go somewhere else. Uh, I had actually planned to have uh, a year off, but ended up only being five months. But in that five months, I was looking for jobs the whole time. The whole time I was getting knockbacks and oh, not quite suitable, not no experience, this sort of stuff, even though I had 11 years of leadership and management experience. So it was difficult and uh, it was only sort of with the support of um, others that I was able to find a job and keep going. Angus, you'll get me ranting about this, but yes, like absolutely. I, I mentioned before that I, I think that Australian society is maturing about how they view their veterans and they don't have a good understanding about what military people do. The real problem with that is when people transition out of defence and go looking for work in the civilian workforce and they're dealing with potential employers who, who can't relate to what they've done in their services. Michael said he's had 11 years of management and leadership experience. You know, the taxpayers have invested in, in him significantly. And he's been in command of major ships, huge organisations, hundreds of people. How is that not an asset to any big organisation? Yep. But it comes back to a point that was raised before about risk aversion. I think there's people, employers look at ex-military people and say, oh, you're a risk for all these reasons, you know, because the media tells a story that you're all broken and damaged. I don't understand what you've done in the military and I can't relate that to the job that I'm recruiting for. And I'm not going to risk it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take the, the vanilla guy who has climbed the corporate ladder. I understand what his CV is telling me rather than the mixed military guy who's got some really interesting stuff in his CV, but I don't understand and I can't relate it to the job. I saw a guy recently um, say to an ex-military, a younger bloke, oh, it must be really easy to get a job as ex-military because, you know, people understand that you can do things and all that sort of stuff. And I said, no, it's exactly the opposite because they have a perception of what he's going to be like, that he's not going to be able to get on with other people, that he's going to be autocratic, that he's going to need to be told exactly what to do. But in the military, you need exactly the opposite of that. You need someone who thinks for themselves, who's a self-starter, who can get on with others, who can solve interpersonal disputes, who can solve problems that are dynamic and, and fast moving. And that's what that person has. I, I don't didn't even know them, but I know that they're the skills they have even before I work out where he'd been and what he'd done. That's an excellent point. I want to give you a real-time example, if I might, Dingus. The, um, the New South Wales Public Service, and Garth would know this, has a uh, on its applications for employment, the online application, there's a checkbox that says, are you ex-ADF or a reservist or regular regular military, permanent military? And I was speaking to a departmental deputy secretary, himself a, a veteran, recently, and he actually said to me that some of these departments are using that checkbox as a filter, and this, this is to quote him, so they don't inherit other people's problems. In other words, they're looking at that box going, this person is ex-defence, therefore has mental health conditions as, as, a, as an assumption. We don't want to inherit those problems into yeah, this department. Yeah, that's just shocking. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is 
just such a waste. I mean, I, I do feel, you know, hiring an ex-military person is a win-win situation. You know, there's a good mm. business case for it. Like, mm. You know, so millions of dollars generally have been, been spent of taxpayers' money training these people so that they are, you know, getting back to my point earlier, you know, the pinnacle of, of professional leadership and management. It is crazy to filter them out just because of some risk Incorrect policy that you've perception. got. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about what we're doing right and clearly what we're doing wrong. What do you all make of the strengths and weaknesses of defence and indeed government support systems to help our veterans get into this next professional stage? And and again, look, Garth, I think you, you in particular are at the pointy end here. Mm. Yeah, look, a, a lot of it is just is shifting public perception of of what military people do. There there are a lot of organisations, both government, private, not for profit that are working in this space trying to get military people. We might make that transition a much easier time. So stepping out of defence, stepping into a job which it is commensurate with your skills and experience and hopefully with your salary expectations as well. Look, I'm going to sound like the naysayer again here. I seem to, I seem to be Mr Negative in this discussion, but I've had a lot of clients. I've had uh, like 103 mental health criminal clients, let alone all the other people who have come to me. And the transition into employment across the board has been has been a terrible experience, particularly for the the younger veterans who weren't subject of the Veterans Entitlements Act or the old pension, the DFIDB pension scheme. So most of the veterans now, um, the ones I've dealt with, and again, I'm, I'm seeing them once the wheels have come off. So there's a bit of bias here, obviously, but the transition space into employment has been very bad. And these people don't generally don't want to be on a couch for the rest, 30 year old men and women. They want to be on a couch for the rest of their lives on some sort of government subsidy to, to exist. I have to agree with you there, Glenn. The, the first barrier is that you've got to give three months' notice. So no no employer is going to wait around for three months and very few people in civilian life will leave a job without having another job to go to. So you've, you've got to start looking for a job after you've already taken the plunge and, and said, right, I'm going to leave this career that I've had for five, six, 10 12, 20 years. So you need to start the three-month countdown of looking for jobs and hoping that someone will wait for you if you're a suitable candidate. So that's a it's a tough tough bridge to to jump to to do that sort of thing uh, and I don't think the military prepares you well I think they actually want you to stay in of course they'll do almost anything to talk you into staying and not making that that initial leap it's interesting listening to the three of you and it reminds me of when Alex and I were interviewing the dozen World War II veterans from our school for the production school and country and I remember when we were talking to them and there was a question asked about how they handled getting back into mainstream. And there was a guy called Lyle Roberts who said it was very difficult. And then I had Eric Few saying how difficult it was. And he fought and he went into law and he fought all through the courts with this demon of the military, but he, but he overcame it and, and fought through it. And there was Ted Carter who saw the worst fighting in Tobruk and New Guinea and said that, you know, he had to leave Sydney and move into the country and got into an accounting practice and then he used to have to, just to get up and go for walks around town. So the affliction that you all feel is common to men and women who have served and there is this price to pay and you are always paying it. There's some fantastic historical stories about this that go back even... So World War One, General Harry Chevelle came back to Australia in 
1919 after leading the forces through Palestine and Egypt and taking Gaza. He came back to Australia at the end of 1919, as did most of his his men. One of them, and the name escapes me, but is a a Brisbane bloke who had been working in Queensland Rail, or, or what it was called back then, before the war, went back into the same job. General Chevelle went and tracked him down. This was the guy who was his deputy director of logistics in the Middle East. So he'd been responsible for... Big position. So, yeah, tens of thousands mm-hmm. of horses, keeping them fed and watered as they moved across the desert throughout the campaign. Logistical nightmare. So, and he did amazing work and he'd received um, commendations, yeah. mentioned in dispatches, done amazing work over there. Harry Chevelle found him back in the same job that he'd left, in the same junior role that, he had, um, that he'd been in when he left for the war. General Chevelle went and spoke to the, the managing director of Queensland Rail and got that changed very quickly, mm. but he had to explain to him what this bloke was capable of because that guy, that managing director, hadn't been to war, hadn't understood what the military were doing and didn't understand the capabilities of the blokes he'd built. And, and I'm sure to the man's humility, as is the case with so many, if not all of our veterans, he was not one to put his hand up and say, I've done this, I should therefore be promoted over you, sir, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think that's important to note as well. No one's saying that we're entitled to anything. And, and in fact, quite the opposite. We want to work for what we're given. And so we don't think we're entitled to anything, but it's hard when what you've done isn't even recognised or isn't even appreciated. So you'll find a lot of uh, defence people working one out or starting their own business because that's that's the only way that they can put their skills to use. They want to work and they want to use those skills so they'll become lawyers or um, accountants things like that where they where they can work on their own and and do their own hard work for themselves just this week angus i was contacted by um, the ceo of a group called melly farming cooperative or melly farming they're actively out now lobbying and seeking veterans uh, to, to get veterans into the ag sector to fill a big hole in this country getting people to work the land and work in the agricultural sector and the point he raised was many of the sons and daughters of these people on the land don't want to stay in the land. They want to go to the cities. And so these 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 industries um, like dairy down my way down the south coast are crumbling. They're actively targeting veterans to come in and train them up to work on the land because of the skill sets that, that we, that veterans broadly, bring to the table. So there are some very good initiatives out there. I'd love to see Melly Farming kick off. Garth, when we spoke last, you were spearheading the New South Wales Veterans Employment Program. You left that role after two years. What prompted that and how successful has that program been? There is a lot of work and a lot of programs out there to employ veterans. What I guess I need to add to that is they're not well coordinated and they're very much in their infancy right now. I started this job because it was an opportunity I couldn't say no to. You know, it's a government-led initiative to get veterans into New South Wales government jobs. So we had a target of 200. We got more than 500 into jobs. So that was very successful. But subtly what I wanted to do in that job is to shift the perception of veterans more broadly in society and and starting at the workplace is a, is is a great place to start. So I look I stepped out of that job because I believe I'd achieved all I needed to. I think there's enough people around who want to take make long-term careers in the veteran space. That's not me. I just wanted to get in, fix what I could and get out and that's what I did. And also they asked you to do it. So did, yeah. <laughs> be, be, being a typical veteran, you know, if if and, and a sucker for a cause, if someone asks you to do it, it's yes sir, I'll do it. Look, absolutely, and I think that's a really that's a really good point as well. Is we are as an organisation, Glenn's talked about it before, but we should have the strongest old school tie network of any group in the country. But we're not there. We 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 are not at a point where veterans network well. We don't bounce off each other professionally very well. We need to be developing that. And indeed, after the First World War and the formation of the RSL, mm. that body did a great service for the veterans. 
Yeah, and you're absolutely right, Angus. There was a, a very good networking, I believe, a very good networking basis within RSL, and that was that was indeed one of the reasons it, 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 it came into being. It was to help your brothers and or brothers in arms back then, but brothers and sisters in arms to get back on with life. It came off the rails, and um, I think that's part of this whole this fragmenting of the veteran the veteran community, and uh, it, that a lot of that comes back to government too. The government has enacted repatriation legislation over the years, which by its very terms has fragmented the veteran community. The previous veterans under certain legislation had greater entitlements to entitlements. That's the, that was the name of the Act, the Veterans Entitlements Act, to certain support mechanisms to finance, etc. That is denied later generations of veterans by the legislative changes. So, you know, the government doesn't have clean hands when it comes to to this uh, to what the RSL had put in place with this mentoring and, and peer support. Glenn, with your current legal pro bono work, what are we getting right? And what could we be doing better to support our veterans, especially in that mental health post-service area? Department of Veterans Affairs are trying very hard to get back on track, and uh, and I'm certainly very pleased to see Liz Cosson appointed recently. I think, uh, from what I've seen, I think she's very, very genuine and, and brings a, a depth of, of experience to that role that hasn't existed for many, many, for, for generations, I believe, in that department. So I think they're, they're on the right track in trying to identify initiatives and trying to develop initiatives and programs and fund those programs. But nonetheless, a lot of money is still going into researching the same issue over and over or coming up with um, the same conclusions that the, the, the process is broken, but how do we fix it? But on a more fundamental, more grassroots level, and this goes for both state and federal, there are some very basic things like funding for veterans' legal aid. Veterans are in the same bucket as everyone else out there in the legal aid space, yet because of the mental health conditions, etc., they tend to be more vulnerable or more exposed to the legal system, the the justice system, than many others. So there needs to be a dedicated few changes there, dedicated legal aid funding. There needs to be, uh, at the moment, it's, it's easier for somebody who breaks into your house and steals your stuff to get, to, get, to get representation through the courts than it is for a veteran who happens to have a mental health condition goes to a pub and gets on a blue. And hence, there are a couple of us doing pro bono veterans mental health criminal work. So I think the legal fraternity needs to step up and, and, and the, the corporate sector and say, well, look, we can do more out there. We can do more to help. It's not just down to government. It's not just down to the ex-service organisations. It must also be down to the corporate sector. This is that tripartite relationship I've referred to previously. And I think the great injustice of this whole discussion is that the servicemen and women who have gone out and served their country in all capacities, both here, abroad, irrespective of which service, are more worthy of support than someone who's broken into a bloody house and done some criminal activity. So why should they be getting even less, if not more, support after their service? It's not even just that they're uh, they're more worthy, but it's more useful to them. The support that you give them is going to pay off a thousand times over, they're going to actually take that opportunity that you give them and run with it. So that's that's the difference as well. And there's tangible evidence to support that too that Michael raises. There's the, the zero recidivism rate predominantly amongst these these veterans when the wheels have come off. In other words, zero reoffending back in the community, doing stuff in in their their veterans groups or in the community. The the fact that they were diverted into treatment and then nothing bad has happened since. Like no reoffending is a very good outcome. It tells me they should never have been in the system in the first place. Veterans are the sort of people who make a mistake, own up to it, take responsibility for it and move on. So that's that's why it's so useful for them. That's why that support is so needed. Has anyone ever tried to quantify the investment government makes in veterans? You know, if, for example, I put a million dollars into a factory, I would expect to be getting so much output from that. But what is the investment that we put 
into someone like Michael who runs a ship, you running a cavalry unit in Afghanistan and you running the legal operations of our operations, you know, abroad. I mean, the cost per person, I would suggest, would be hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions. Yeah, more likely millions, yeah. So therefore, where's the common sense that we're prepared to put millions into this asset up to this point, and then after this point, we're not even prepared to put cents into it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a wasted resource. It's an absolute waste of resources. Couldn't agree more. So, gents, which organisations out there do we think are doing the good work? What models should we be applying on a wider scale, like Soldier On, Veterans 360, etc.? I think we are at a point now where we are going to see a change in the RSL in Australia. We've got some fresh blood in there. Um, you know, James Brown in New South mm. Wales just come on as the state president. Bronson Horan down in South Australia. Some young guys, some really motivated people looking at shifting the way veterans are supported by this cornerstone veteran organisation. And they should be getting back to their primary role of mm. supporting veterans, lobbying the government, being a voice for the veteran community. There are so many organisations doing great stuff out there and they're doing that because there's been a need. I would love to see that need evaporate because veterans are being properly supported. I think we need to get back to those grassroots veteran organisations, the, the RSL and Legacy, the, those organisations have been around you, damn near 100 can, years. Yeah. You can feel the change coming. You can feel the younger generation starting to take over. I've had the very unpleasant experience of being in an RSL, uh, not on Anzac Day, but some other function. I can't even remember what it was. And, and I was in uniform, had my medals on and had a Vietnam veteran come up and flick him and, and say, I bet that wasn't for a real war. And that is just what we were talking about before, totally exclusive of people and we should be supporting each other and looking after each other. And I actually said to him, mate, isn't that the same thing that you guys got when you came back? Like, why would you pass that on to the next generation? Why would you eat the next generation like that? And he just sort of like just looked at his beer and walked away. It's not a rite of passage to to downplay the service of the, the next generation. RSL getting back on mission is exactly the point. And um, this is where the, the, the lobbying piece, I don't think RSL has lobbied adequately since after the, the Second World War. And had the RSL been, and I mentioned earlier, this fragmented legislative regime for veterans, the entitlement legislation, the compensation legislation, had the RSL been in there lobbying and putting submissions to the parliament, I doubt this this fragmented regime would exist. I, I suspect we would have a much better regime, the, the, the system which applied to the Vietnam Veterans and earlier, Veterans Entitlements Act, and not this other nonsense that they've rolled out over the over the last couple of generations. Um, so getting back on the lobbying space, getting back to back on mission, back to core business. Support getting out there, Mick Bainbridge, and uh, I'm going to add add this mm. to the to James. James is doing a very good job in New South Wales. I agree, the younger blood. Mick Bainbridge has a policy lead in his vice president of RSL New South Wales has a policy lead, and he is actively lobbying government and a department on a, on a daily basis. This guy's a full time law student or commerce student. He's out there filling that hole that was left by the RSL for many many years. And the supports there as well. The veterans just need to actually take the reins and do it. I'm not going to RSL bash here because it is it is getting back on track. But it has, as Gus said, it has allowed for these other micro ESOs or other ex-service organisations to get in there and fill fill the breach. And I think there's a there's an opportunity here for RSL to get in there. And when I was CEO, I was trying to sort of make this happen. RSL to be the accrediting body for all of these ESOs, these ex-service organisations, and say, well, look, we're going to support you. You don't need to badge yourself RSL, but we're going to we're going to help you lobby government, etc., in achieving what you're doing in your discrete area. But you have to have good governance. You have to you know have your books open and transparent. You have to be sort of doing the right thing. So there's an opportunity there for RSL to be the lead ESO again. 
but these other ones have filled the breach. And I don't believe that anytime soon they'll be going away. I mean, I'm an ambassador for Veterans 360, so there's another degree of bias there, but they are filling the veterans' homelessness space um, that RSL should have been filling. It, was, it is actually in the RSL charter. It's in their mission statement, homeless veterans. So look, I think the, these, these smaller ESOs, are ste- some of them are stepping up and the RSL can help them kick goals. Glenn, can you tell us a bit about the 360 app? Um, yes, Angus, Veterans 360 Australia are presently working with Veterans Affairs, Department of Veterans Affairs and an organisation SafeWatch Global to bring um, an innovative new app to the veteran crisis response space. Um, essentially, this app allows a veteran who's having suicidal ideations or who is experiencing some sort of mental health crisis, pushes one button on the phone, it sends a message out by, uh, via the GPS coordinates to the closest uh, mental health trained first aiders, so mental health responders, to then contact this person and and um, and help help this person through that crisis now it's um it's a, an app that was I understand designed in the US and has has been reasonably successful in the United States but now veterans 360 they've been trolling it for a while but they're now looking at getting all being well getting some funding from veterans affairs to be able to uh, to apply it across the country in Australia and it, it, I think it's a great um, modern initiative to, to help save veterans lives you've all done and continue to do such great work in this space Are there any other final thoughts or comments that you'd like to share, especially with regard to what it is of being a veteran today? You know, we're we're approaching Anzac Day, and um, and you know, there's a big focus on the history of you know defence, Australian Defence Service, and a big focus on commemoration. And I think the average younger veteran, certainly 90% of my of my clients, really aren't actively immersed in commemorations. A lot of my people won't even leave their couch on Anzac Day. A lot of my clients, they're more about uh, about supporting their peers about getting you know, getting the support. So I think we, we can't we can't sacrifice care and well-being in favour of commemoration. So we can't uh, put medals and marches ahead of welfare and well-being. That, that's the big big message I'm sort of putting out. And I think yeah, I've said it a few times now. I think that Australian society is going through a maturing process, and as part of that, they're starting to work out the balance of how they need to interact with the veteran community and what what veterans bring. And in line with that, I. To echo what I said before, I would really love to see the veteran community being the strongest old school tie network in the country. You know, over 5,000 of us leave defence every year. We should be this tight group who should be leading in government and industry. And I would love to see us get to that. I like your analogy. I mean, you should almost have a, a LinkedIn version just for the veterans. Yeah. And look, there are groups out there, but then like a lot of things in the veteran space, they're not well coordinated. Mm. I think I'd like to see military service being treated more like a job. I know that sounds crazy to a lot of people, but that's what kind of what the military wants. They want people to move in and out of service. They want them to have reserve time and, and to jump between their private and public service. And it's good for good for both organisations to have that. So I think it'd be better if we treated veterans as if they were just doing a job, a very important job, a very special job in many cases, and a job that asks for far more than many other jobs but then give them the support to actually find a job in civilian life afterwards as well because you you put that effort into a veteran and you'll you'll get it back a thousand times over. They'll, they'll come back, they'll do reserve work, they'll be pillars of the community, they'll contribute to their civilian work and valuable contributing members of society. And Michael, I think even though we're talking about where things have gone wrong, the vast majority of cases actually go fabulously well, mm-hmm. that people get back into life and they value their experience, they really love their camaraderie that they have with their fellow mates that they've served with. And they're able to use that experience and actually appreciate how lucky they are to be alive in many cases. 
and the wonderful life they can live. And look, therefore, you know, what message do we have for veterans who are serving today or, or thinking of serving, who are listening to our podcast that can be heartened by what we're talking about today? You know, it, it's the old ethos that we live by when we're in service. You, you look after your mates. The moment you walk out the door, you don't then drop that. A lot of these organisations, commandos, for example, there's an expression in two commando, commando for life. And I think that you, know, you, you, bring, you should be able to bring that mateship with you to the outside world and, and leverage off that. So you know, look after your mates both in and outside of service. Being in the military, you're part of a special cohort. So it doesn't matter whether that cohort is your recruit school or your first unit or the last unit that you were with or you know a particular training course that you do. You're always part of these little special cohorts and you fit in regardless. You, you end up fitting into that, that cohort. I'd like to see that strengthened so that we're more inclusive after military service as well and uh, actually look after each other a bit better after military service. My message to veterans would be don't be defined by anything other than what you truly believe you are. Don't be defined by Hollywood. Don't be defined by media headlines. Be defined by who you are, you know, a proud ex-military person. Garth, Michael and Glenn, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you all again today. Thank you very much for your service and your time. Thanks, Thanks Angus. Thank you. That was Angus Horden's panel talk with Garth Callender, Michael Wright and Glenn Kolomitz, recorded in April 2018. We want this discussion to help change the conversation about what it means to be a veteran. You can help by spreading the word. Post the link to the episode on social media and recommend the podcast to your friends. You can also jump onto iTunes and give us a five-star rating and review. It helps us climb the charts in Apple Podcasts and get discovered by more people. And if you haven't already... Also be sure to go back and listen to the individual conversations. In Season 1, check out Number 3, Garth Callender, and Number 8, Sarah Turner and Michael Wright. And in Season 2, check out Number 22, Glenn Kolomitz. Subscribe in your podcast app to get all content. We have two more of these panels coming up. Join us next Tuesday for Angus speaking with veterans of the Vietnam War. You can write to us about this episode by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our Twitter handle is at LOTLpod. And we're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening, unless we forget. Mm-hmm.